You're now listening to episode 99 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli joined here today with Ron Rohde, a Dallas-based real estate attorney who specializes in all aspects of transactional residential real estate. He advises his clients on LLC formation, residential leases, short-term rentals, contractor disputes, lien issues, and much more. In today's episode, we discuss the various aspects of residential lease agreements, how lease agreements are being impacted by COVID-19, what his clients are doing to mitigate economic vacancy during this crisis, and a lot more. Ron, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got involved with real estate? Absolutely. So my whole family has been in real estate, you know, as a mortgage, as a lender, uh, real estate brokers. From an early age, my family's had different rentals. I've been running keys and showing houses since I was really having my driver's license. When I became a lawyer, you know, I had some clarity in that real estate was the area I wanted to go into. I've been practicing law for about 10 years, primarily as general counsel for a new construction real estate developer. Since then, I've gone on my own and really focused on real estate investors and doing the transactional side. So papering the investment agreements, the acquisition, due diligence, and leasing. You know, uh, My goal is once we acquire the property, I'm going to stay with my clients and provide that leasing and operations support that they need to manage a property well. So that's, that's what I've been doing. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So I know leases, leases are a big topic right now in the advent of COVID-19 and what is going on. And you also spoke about it at the Tax and Legal Summit. Uh, would you be able to just kind of give an overview of the importance of a good lease and what goes into making a good lease? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can get a little bit philosophical here, but ultimately a lease is the relationship between the landlord and the owner, somebody who owns real property. This lease is allowing somebody else temporary use of your property and in exchange, you know, they give you consideration for that. Um, That can be money, that can be other permissions or rights, but it's important because it's the only document that outlines the relationship and it's your only opportunity maybe once every year or every couple of years that you get to revisit that relationship. So, you know, payment terms, um, damage responsibility, who's responsible for what, what are their roles for complaining, how do they work together to solve the problems that come up. And, you know, a really well-written lease is kind of a win-win situation. It reflects the goals of the investors or the owners in particular relationship to this building. And it reflects the needs of the tenant And, you know, what I find is oftentimes it's not just maximum price. You know, you don't want to just go in there. And I think every investor, every client would say, well, I'm not willing to take the highest dollar amount if the person's going to come into my house and play loud music and throw loud parties and damage my property, leave, and then dispute me for it. You know, that's not worth the risk. I would rather accept a little bit less rent that's paid every month 
on the first of the month, you know, ACH or Cozy app, that's a tenant that I would prefer because, again, we're starting with a lot of assumptions that our clients want passive investment. They want stress-free. They're looking for a return. And they're not looking for an active problem-solving challenge. So, you know, that's a very long answer to what is a lease? Why is it so important? It's the only chance that you have to define the relationship between yourself and the tenants. Got it. Got it. So we we talked about the tenants. We talked about the landlord. Are there any other key uh, parties involved in a typical lease agreement? Yeah, definitely. You know, at its core, all you need is a landlord, a property owner, and the tenant, the person who's going to use the space. But as you move up the food chain, different parties can start to get involved. So primary level is you'll see a property manager. They might be assembling the lease. They might be talking to the tenant. Then you'll have brokers. You can have either a tenant rep broker. So somebody who found the place and has a obligation or they have a commitment to pay them, you know, like a commission for finding that tenant. And then if the lease gets very complicated, you can have attorneys. You know, attorneys are the ones that start drafting clauses. And when you get away from standard form leases where you're just checking the box and you want to put something in there a little bit unique, you really need an attorney to draft good language that um, is enforceable and is clear that that's what the parties intend. When does it make sense to loop an attorney in to to help out structuring a lease? Um, is there a certain size or is it like a certain type of tenant? Um, you know, I, th- I think everybody makes their own decision. Certainly for a commercial deal, anytime that you're making changes that I would say are more than a sentence. So if you can get away with eight words, we can put that in and most people can take that risk. But even for residential leases, you know, the key is you're investing in a certain clause or a certain parameter for this property. How many times are you going to use it, right? It's not something that's just a one and done for a home that you own. If there is a parking situation that is unique about your multifamily building, you're going to be using that clause over and over and over again. And that's, to me, how you can reduce the the cost per use. Um, Obviously, you know, if if we work together, I charge fixed fees. So I can tell you up front exactly how much this negotiation or this clause is going to cost. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk to people about whether they think it's time, but you don't know what you don't know. And that's definitely true in this case. So what are some of the key parts to a residential lease agreement? And what sort of things should you definitely be keeping an eye on? And what sort of things can't be put in a lease agreement? Yeah. So when I deal with my residential leases, it's very interesting. Um, there's kind of two sets of investors, you know, people that try to put everything under the sun and they want to micromanage the tenant relationship. And they're going to put, you know, hundred dollar fines if you don't water the grass or if you don't trim these bushes. And, and I'm happy to put those in there. But what we find is we do get pushback from the tenant because they start to look at it and they say, this lease is 14 pages long for a residential lease. It doesn't really make sense there's a lot of these penalties. And so it's a negotiation like everything else. And while I do feel landlords have some power, they can't go overboard. And what I mean by that is there are certain statutory protections. There are tenant rights, especially these days. There's a lot of not-for-profit groups. There are a lot of, you know, not, I don't know if they're charities, but they're social justice groups that have attorneys on staff that are looking for these violations. And 
you cannot discriminate, you cannot limit certain groups or interactions of people. There's a lot of federally protected items. You know, we talk a lot about service animals. That's been a hot button topic before this coronavirus was people were figuring out that instead of paying a pet deposit or a pet application fee, they were claiming that their animal was a service animal. And then suddenly you can't charge any additional fees. You have to make reasonable accommodation. And it was kind of this, um, doing air quotes, it was a loophole for tenants to get their animals in. And so people were trying to put all this, you know, language saying, well, you know, no pit bulls, no Dobermans, no aggressive breeds. And those, it, those are the kinds of things you, you, you can't impinge on people's protected classes. That's a federal rule for discrimination. But then on a state level, you'll have certain quality of the home that the landlord has a duty to provide. So for example, if your roof is leaking, right? You cannot contract away that it's the responsibility of the tenant to fix the roof and prevent water intrusion because, you know, what are they renting you? They're basically renting you a barn or a shed if it's leaking water. And that's something that people can put in the contract, you sign it, but the second you try to enforce that, these tenant rights groups will have a lawyer file a lawsuit and a repair and remedy can be very costly for a landlord. You know, we defend some of our clients from these cases and they're spending upwards of three or five or 6,000 plus the cost of repair, um, plus the attorney's fees. So those are, you know, sort of the, uh, the nature of the category. You can't put too much responsibility on the tenant. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I could see that some of these issues would come up when negotiating uh, negotiating a lease agreement uh, with, with a tenant. Are there any other common like battlegrounds between the tenant and the landlord when it comes to negotiating such an agreement? Yeah, I think the next category that comes up a lot is what are permitted uses? Um, people want to come in and they want to have you know multiple roommates or they want to have more than two people um, well, they probably don't have two people on the lease, but if their ultimate use invites more people to stay in, then the landlord, they're going to find out about it and they're going to have issues. But some people will try to stay up front. Hey, you know, we're a bunch of college students or we're this. We want to have this many people. You have X number of bedrooms. We want to convert one of these rooms. Um, parking, you know, can you park cars on the front lawn? I don't know why I see that a lot, but but that's something that tenants might think that's reasonable. I'm renting the full space. Why can't I just park my car on the lawn temporarily just for a night? You know, you're having a party, having people over. But if that's in the lease, then can't do it. So there's a lot of rules about really just the use, you know, what kind of noise levels, what kind of how many people you're going to have over. Tenants don't think about it too much, but the people that do will put a lot of duties back on the landlord. So for timely repairs, that's another area we see a lot of, you know, I'd say reasonable tenant pushback. The landlord says, you give me notice, I'll confirm the notice within three days, and then I will send an estimate out within seven days. And then I will give you an estimate repaired completion date within three days after that. I'm like, Geez, you know, you've just ticked off 12 days from when the tenant had a problem. And I do see tenants, that's something they do read because they complain about that from their prior lease or their prior living situation was the landlord took forever to fix things. So they want to read the lease and see when is the landlord obligated to fix things. And if you put too long of a window, you're going to lose tenants. I think there's going to be pushback and they're going to want to strike through and, and modify that. 
Yeah, I could definitely see with that being an issue. I know from a perspective of me personally, I've rented out an apartment before, and that was something that I was told to look for, specifically by people who I asked, you know, what should I be looking out for in this lease? And they said, make sure that repair timelines are reasonable. So I could definitely see that being an issue. Um, when it comes to a landlord wanting to enforce a lease, are there any things that the tenants should be aware of that they should make sure they put in the lease that they may want to enforce later? I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, what kind of mistakes do, do tenants regret not putting in there after the fact? Yeah. And again, I think this is an area that tenants are very aware of, which is a, a third party guarantee. So if you have people that have either, you know, maybe marginal credit or they're a student or their income is not high enough a lot of landlords will require a personal guarantee from a third party. So whether that's a parent or just a friend or you know any kind of relationship, and that's a personal guarantee to ensure financial performance of the lease. And these are things that the landlord requires where they have more maybe market power or maybe it's more market standard, market rate. And that's a very quick place of contention where tenants don't want to obligate a third person. You know, they're going to say, look, I'm qualified. I have an income. I can either qualify for this apartment on my own or not. But the landlord is going to put that in there. And if, if they can get anybody else to sign, you know, it's, it's a huge coup for the landlord because you've opened up a new channel for somebody to, you know, file a lawsuit and potentially get a money damages award against that third party guarantor. And it's very persuasive because let's say you've you've stopped paying rent, you've breached, you know, about six months in, you still have six months of full rent that's automatically accelerated due. You have certain penalties, fines, you have attorney's fees, you have court fees. You're looking at, you know, thirty thousand dollars kind of due to this third party. And it's a very effective tool for the landlord to recover the balance of the lease. And again, it depends on your state, but in general, they're pretty simple and fast. So again, that that causes a lot of settlements from these third parties to pay the landlord. And so it's a great tool for the landlord to say, I don't want any risk of this tenant moving out and not paying the rest of the lease term. So I have this third person that's going to pay me a pretty good amount of money to settle the dispute against them. And you can still go after the original tenant as well. That's interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of things going on right now due to the COVID-19 uh, legislation that was recently released. And just kind of wanted to see how, how are lease agreements or if you've seen any lease agreements being altered or being changed during, during this period of time. Yeah, it's really a fascinating study or, or observation right now. Um, you can get into a little bit of the economics of it. But on the one hand, for my landlords, they're saying this is a very short period of time. From about the middle of March or maybe early March to the end of April, we witnessed a complete shutdown. You know, suddenly people in the service industry went from a steady, predictable income to zero, almost zero dollars overnight. And it caused a lot of stress on those tenants. And come April 1st, you know, we were looking at where they're going to pay rent. And it looks like for by and large, a lot of people still did make their April payments, but it poses a new problem for the landlords because for those tenants who didn't pay or made a partial payment, they're going to have problems due to the, the closure of the courts. You're not going to be able to evict that tenant. So I'll take Dallas County, for example, where I do a lot of work. Um, they're accepting new filings and you can file all the paperwork and you can do the notices, but you're not going to get a judgment. You may or may not get a hearing. 
and you're not going to be able to serve that writ to regain possession. So the tenants kind of know this and they can play the delay game and they can get an extra two months of free rent if you know they choose not to pay. And so it's really an interesting question of who are these tenants and do they have savings and are they going to use that savings towards rent instead of saying, well, they can't evict me anyway, I'm just going to stop paying rent. And we've seen there's some of these Facebook groups about tenants kind of networking or organizing, and they're going on rent strikes. And it is, um, it's a fascinating outcome where all the tenants of a single building were uniting and saying, nobody pay rent. We want a rent reduction, a unilateral, one-sided, every tenant gets a rent reduction or we're not paying. And it's it's really tough on the landlord if you're a single property or you know that's that's the only property you have. You don't have a ton of reserves to reach into to make your mortgage payment. And then that kind of leads me to my next comment too. We've seen the forbearance. So for certain federally backed loans, you know you can apply for that forbearance. It's really a dangerous option. And and roughly again, I, I'll be paraphrasing. This is not legal advice, um, but you know you can forbear that. But if you forbear your mortgage payments, you also agree that you're not going to evict anybody in that same time period. And so what happens is if you are at or near physical occupancy for your building, you aren't getting rent in, you don't have to pay your mortgage, fine, but you also can't evict anybody to get performing tenants or paying tenants in. So how do you solve your problem? You, you know, you've just hit pause, but now you can't take your finger out of the dike and what do you do? So it's a really interesting, you know, it's like game theory, a little bit of economics, but what does forbearance do except delay anything? Because if you can't evict them, you can't solve your your cash flow problems. I think it's really fascinating too to watch kind of across the board all the different landlords that I've spoken to over the past couple of weeks. It's the same thing that you just described. And it's almost it's become like a very different business all of a sudden. It's not just a, well, I can evict tenants and replace them. I mean, even some some landlords, they jumped on the cash for keys things. So they got tenants out, but now they're struggling with even replacing tenants. <laughs> you know, So it's like a really interesting situation that landlords are in across the board because like you said, they can't evict them. They're, they're kind of stuck with them for a while, or at least until at the very bare minimum, the courts reopen. Fully, and then, and then, even then, right? The courts are going to be backed up for, I would imagine, what years oh, yeah. processing. All I don't this know about stuff. years, but, but yeah, they're going to be significantly, significantly delayed. The whole chain has is going to keep accepting filings. You know, people are going to miss rent, and people are going to file, but nothing is moving through. So it's awful. It's awful. So. Is there any recourse for landlords if their tenants, you know, they do band together and they march on the landlord, so to speak? Is there any any recourse for that landlord at the end of the day, or they just kind of have to suck it up and roll with it? I mean, you can basically deal with each individual tenant on an individual basis because they all have their own lease. And so there are really no group negotiating powers but really your recourse is on individual. And even for the eviction bans, there are some exceptions. I've heard some stories. So there's like a crime exception. There is a um, threat to other tenants. So there are still ways and, and the courts are processing some things. So for example, you know, we email the coordinators, we're doing Zoom hearings. So I don't want to say it's impossible. It is slowed to single digits you know, every month. 
where they used to be doing a few a day, but you're able to push through and get some emergency hearings. And I think that is the only tool that landlords have to say, this is a threat to somebody's physical safety or there was a crime committed. And that's how you're still able to evict right now. How do you see the landlord-tenant relationship playing out after all of this? I mean, I, I'm seeing around our area a ton of tenants that are doing exactly what you said. They're banding together and they're going on rent strikes. There has been like an official rent strike movement uh, Facebook page, which by the it's way, the like, groups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you're going to do a rent strike, don't throw your name on Facebook saying that you're <laughs> doing a rent strike, especially if you don't actually need to do that. Um, but how do you see the landlord-tenant relationship playing out after this? Yeah, it's something that I'm talking to some of the multifamily owners in this area. And I think what the new equilibrium has to be is greater density in each apartment unit. So for example, you know, if you had a service worker, he makes good money and he has a 900 square foot studio that he rents by himself. The new normal is going to be that guy needs to move into a two bedroom and have a roommate. That's going to reduce his rent costs, his share per month. And it's about figuring out that transition. So the landlords that can recognize this earlier and maybe have the capacity to move people around or shuffle them within the building just to create more density, but to say, look, you know, you can't afford $1,100 a month on your reduced hours or your different tip schedule, whatever you're working Amazon. But I have a two bedroom available in my unit. I can move you over there and I'm going to let you change your lease or whatever. I don't say term and not breach, but nobody's breaching any leases. We're going to get you in a new lease in a new unit. Can you bring in a roommate? Can I put you in touch with a list? Whatever the answer is, it's going to say, increase the density because all these people, quote, overbought their apartment. But if you can do that extra judicially without forcing an eviction, without forcing all this negative credit history and everything, you're going to win friends in those tenants. And they're going to say, look, you know, he was a really reasonable, he put me in a better spot financially where I'm stable now. Negative, I have a roommate, but that's the impact to them but it's much better than being out on the street or having this cloud hanging over them of, I'm going to get evicted the second the courts open up. Instead, it puts them in a sustainable position. That's what I think the new equilibrium, the landlords that have that awareness or flexibility to say, I need to open up this unit. I need to open up your studio to somebody, the the single guy who is renting a two-bedroom apartment. He needs to downgrade to a studio. And I'm going to help everybody within my system or within my property management or whatever my sphere of influence is, helping to reshuffle those people, you know, get into an apartment that they can afford. It sounds kind of like I'm selling a used car, but get them into the payments that they can afford. But that's the new equilibrium. You know, you got to increase density, you got to downsize, whatever it is. And then the landlords that can work with their tenants and sign agreements and re-sign leases without the use of the courts, those are the people that are going to come out big winners, I think, after this is over. It seems like a really good proactive win-win. You know, the landlord knows that at the end of the day, if this thing goes on for a long time, my tenants aren't going to be able to pay rent. So what do I need to do? I need to get more tenants in here to help reduce the cost per square foot per tenant, really, at the end of the day. So going to tenants now and saying, hey... I understand you're, you are or may be going through some financial issues. Let's go ahead and deal with this proactively so that 
I mean, at the end of the day, the last thing that I want to do is actually evict you and, you know, put a stain on your credit for the next seven years. And, um, why don't we, here, here's a plan that I have. I can move you to this unit and you can bring in a friend or something and your exactly. costs are reduced. Or, you know, really at, cool. at the simplest, you can just say downsize, go from a three to a two, go from a two to a one. Yeah. 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 yeah that too. Really good proactive step. I haven't heard that before this. So awesome. So if we switched more to commercial, I've been seeing a lot of a lot of people talk about force majeure. I don't even know if I pronounced that right, but force majeure. Um, some people are pumped that they have it. Some people are bummed that they have it in their lease. And then some people that are pumped that they have it find out that it actually ain't really up to snuff, I guess. So yeah. Yeah. tell us what force majeure is. And does a black swan event such as a pandemic count as an act of God? Yeah, it's really interesting. The courts are going to be deciding this issue for years to come and then probably on appeals after that. But in a nutshell, the force majeure clause is basically if something happens that neither side could or we reasonably would have predicted at the time of signing the contract, it releases both parties from this contract. It's basically a nuclear option that nobody has to perform, nobody has any obligation of payments back and forth other than you know what's been performed already. And it's really, like you said, it's, it's an interesting option. And for people that choose to elect it, it's really just, it's just blowing up everything. And you're just hitting the, the, the big red button. Is that better than trying to work it out or trying to renegotiate the terms of the lease? I don't know. For those of the people that have that choice, because if you don't have it, I think a lot of people are suffering from the grass is always greener. Um, and they say, oh, well, I wish I could just get out of this agreement. I'm like, well, yeah. But if the contract terms are so biased that way, for example, you know, the manufacturer versus the, the receiver, they're never going to put it in there anyway, because they don't want to give the other side such a huge win. So for the people that do have it, they're really debating whether they want to exercise. We rarely see it in commercial real estate. It's not a clause that comes up in leases. You know, There are other acts that would prevent performance from the landlord side, like you know condemnation or the building gets damaged or catches on fire. And we have lots and lots of clauses and language that deals with those situations. The force majeure is really something more for like service or you know, if there's a blockade, on international shipping and we can't get steam cruisers across the Pacific that, you know, if we can't get cargo containers traveling because of a war, that's the type of event that says, okay, all all bets are off. I don't want to pay you. I don't want to buy all these, you know, widgets. And the supplier says, great, well, I can't even ship you the widgets. That's really the, the classic force majeure type of case. Now to answer your second question about, is this applicable? It's really interesting because the factual history of the world has shown that these flu-type viruses are not atypical. We've had SARS, we had swine flu, we had avian flu. Uh, So there's a lot of precedent. Um, A reasonable person that's not living under a rock would say, this is not all that unexpected. I saw this on Netflix six months ago. You know, we all saw contagion. There were a lot of warning signs that would lead both parties to say, it's not impossible that a virus would break out and cause a global contraction of the economy and governments would react. Governments are kind of that wild card too. Uh, We have a lot of people questioning whether government action can trigger certain clauses because it's a restriction or it's a taking of the party's ability to do business. 
but it's kind of a topic for another podcast. But yeah, force majeure, it's a really powerful outcome to exercise. And, you know, you take the good and the bad with it. Absolutely. And I, and I know that this is, you know, there's a lot of crazy things going on with the real estate investors and what have you. But from a perspective of, you know, outside of what you talked about before, um, with, uh, you know, renegotiating leases, trying to work with your tenants, is there anything else you've seen your clients doing to adjust to this uh, type of uh, situation that we're seeing going on right now? I think just reanalyzing your investment thesis, maybe not making changes, right? Not reacting too quickly, but but just taking a look at that thesis and saying, what are the shifts in allocation in the US-based market are we going to see? I'm talking to, you know, private equity funds that are saying, okay, this is support for our thesis of more US-based manufacturing, more square footage of warehouse. People are going to take less risk on the supply chain completely being flung across the globe with just-in-time manufacturing. And we're going to say, look, if we have a critical component of our business, we're going to stockpile that component just a little bit more, right? Just 5%, 10% more inventory being held on US territory. And maybe we're going to manufacture a little bit more. We're going to spend a little bit more to manufacture in the US instead of relying on 17 countries in Asia to piece together our product. And so that's going to have some implications for the commercial space. Um, I think people always need a place to live, but it does kind of highlight the vulnerability of class A, you know, luxury apartments, Um, anything that's perceived as high end, you know, hospitality is taking a hit. And it just shows you that it's not always uh, rainbows and sunshine for those class A properties this type of event hits you and you better be prepared with cash reserves to weather out these types of events. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, not to speculate here, this is, this is just you know, conjecture, I guess you would say. Um, I would imagine if that is to take off and if more people are to manufacture more items here in the United States than like industrial properties and the more commercial properties, as you said before, might have uh, more value going forward. But I guess at this point, just a matter of when and, and you know, if that will actually occur. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you guys know about these slow, slow shifts, but you can't ignore the facts. And that's the long-term range implications that for these large markets, you know, you're still buying a building for its own metrics, but you can underwrite a little bit higher, maybe upside, a little bit greater demand based on the real reality of this type of event happening. And, you know, this happened, this shift was already starting even before coronavirus. I mean, this was with the um, the trade war and with the tariffs, right? You saw a lot of people getting squeezed out with the tariffs. And then they were already thinking, hey, let's increase our US warehouse footprint so that we're not impacted as much by tariffs and trade war. You know, obviously you're you're in the service business uh, as an attorney. What are you doing in your business to pivot uh, amongst uh, this new COVID crisis that we're seeing? Yeah, you know, I hate to, you know, be happy at this tragedy that's that's happening. But I am grateful for the opportunity because it does allow my clients to come to me and say, Ron, we really appreciate hiring you because now we're going back and we're looking at the contract and the clauses that I dragged them through multiple times and said, do you want this? Do you understand what this means? And if this happens, what do you want the outcome to be? They're appreciative of the fact that they did a double check. They didn't think that the contract was a 
one size fits all, whatever, you know, standard reply or outcome was in it before, that's what fits for me. And so it's good, you know, as a service provider, I'm getting a little bit more credit for the type of work that we do, which is looking over the details when times are good and optimistic so that they're enforceable when times are bad. And nobody likes to think about that, but this is a a reminder of the value of really understanding your business, understanding the importance of the documents that you're signing every day. You know, and absolutely, I think uh, everybody out there listening, there is something to take away. Be sure you read what you're signing, okay? Always, COVID-19 or not, always read what you're signing and understand what you're signing. And, you know, obviously in a situation like this, like Ron just said, that becomes all the more important when you're under these types of circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're adjusting too. You know, we're switching to virtual. Our firm is slowly adopting. I'm an outlier, I think, not as good as you guys. But, you know, that's another real impact is that I think the businesses that can pivot to doing video calls and more email and more online interaction, it's really going to change to a lesser degree, you know, how offices and how business is done in the future. That's an excellent point. And one of the things that a lot of people are worried about on the commercial side to one point is the impact it's going to have on offices. Like, is our employers going to realize, okay, I don't really need to have a huge office and have all my staff come to the office every day. Instead, I can do like the hoteling or uh, reduced office size. Now, all of a sudden, all these offices that are out there are going to be stuck, unfortunately, maybe with low occupancies going forward just because of this kind of pivot and, and the ability of the success from working from home and what have you? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, there was already that kind of shift on the retail side. You know, we saw smaller store footprints, everybody was adjusting. But it's I don't think that that adjustment has gone well for a lot of companies. It really exposed how vulnerable they were to a lack of technology or a lack of communication a lack of objectives and daily standups. So they're going to go back to how things were. It was a temporary adjustment for them and is not a permanent you know, way they do business adjustment. So I think the fears of commercial office are greatly exaggerated. But you know, yeah, on the margins, I think a few people will enjoy it a lot more. Their employees might be happier, more productive. But again, that requires the management and ownership to share a new vision, as well as to place the proper incentive. So those are a lot of pieces that had to occur while a company was dealing with a crisis. I just don't think that's feasible for that many companies to now say, oh, we don't need as much office now because we've suddenly pivoted to being a virtual work from home company. You know, That's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's definitely not going to happen overnight. And my thought process is at least it'll get people starting to think about the different things that a virtual environment holds true. So you mentioned some of those things like communication, using technology, holding people accountable to results. You know, you'd be surprised even in an office environment, you might not hold people accountable to results or the results that are actually necessary to to get the job done. You might hold them accountable to showing up in the office from nine to five and just being physically present. And especially in the CPA world, at least that's exactly what the results are most of the time. And you get into a virtual environment, you realize crap, that actually doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I mean, that doesn't really impact my bottom line, uh, positively at least. I need to set better parameters here, better expectations, more clarity. And so my hope with all of this is that people experience virtual, just get a taste for it, and then start asking questions on, well, are we looking at the right things? Even when they go back to the office, because I know 
especially in the professional services world. We've got a lot of baby boomer firms out there, old traditional partners, no, nothing against them, nothing against them, but they like the in-office feel. They, they like the traditional look and feel and that's fine. But the question is going to be, are you taking anything out of this experience and are you going to apply it to your in-office environment to make it more effective? And I think that there are things that you can look at such as enhanced communication, such as enhanced technology, better expectations, that if you pay attention to it, and I know it's crazy time, but if you do pay attention to those things, then it'll make your business a lot better going forward too. Yeah. And I don't think that this is a sidebar. This is not a distracted conversation because I do think every listener, if you own one property, or even if you rent out a room, you are a business and you should treat your investment as such. You know, you need to decide, am I running a charity or am I running a business? And just because it's a quote, passive real estate investment, it is a business. You interact with people, you know, you're paying money to get service. You expect you have revenue, you have rental income. You should treat it as as a mini business, Uh, very, very small, but it is a business. And so if you can grow and scale your business, your investment business using these principles, I think it's going to be really beneficial uh, for your mindset. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what would be the best way for our listeners, if they want to get in touch with you or your firm, what would be the best way for them to do so? Uh, definitely the website, www. Do we, do we have to say that anymore? We don't have to say that. RonaldRodeLaw.com. So R-O-N-A-L-D, Rody, R-O-H-D-E, Law.com. Yeah, we have a contact form on there. You know, you, you can put in some information. We'll have somebody get back with you. But we are, you know, absolutely taking new clients and trying to use this opportunity to to help more people. Absolutely. So we definitely appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. Looking forward to get this out there. And we will drop that link uh, in the show notes for everybody who is listening. If you want to learn more about Ron, potentially work with him, you can go ahead and click that link and, and learn more. Have you heard of the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit coming up on June 11th through the 13th? It's a three-day information-packed virtual event for multifamily investors with over 1,000 attendees and over 50 speakers. You will hear from experts on finding deals, raising capital, underwriting strategies, selecting markets, and so much more. I have also been invited back to present on tax strategies for multifamily investors. To grab your tickets, head on over to www.apartmentevent.com and use promo code THOMAS to get $100 off. Whether you're a seasoned vet or just getting started, this is an event that you won't want to miss. Again, join me at the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit by visiting www.apartmentevent.com today and use promo code THOMAS for $100 off your tickets. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.